I'm Mernas Campbell, founder and CEO of Kimia and Kimia Reset. And I'm really passionate about helping pharmaceutical sales professionals to feel confident about using technology, using uh, digital content to connect with healthcare professionals effectively. And is a human element of digital transformation that really interests me. Um, the enabling people to use technology is what I'm really curious about. And to explore this topic, I've been interviewing inspiring pharma leaders um, to learn from them and to bounce ideas and to share their perspective. Um, and what I found that all of the people I've interviewed, what they have in common is that they really care about the people behind the tools. And I'm so delighted to have James Harper, founder of 28B, speaker, facilitator, trusted vivo expert and juggler to, to have with me here. Hi, James. How are you doing? Hey, Melis. Thank you very much for having me uh, on this. Looking forward to your first LinkedIn Live experience. I know. We're both virgin in this, aren't we? <laughs> So James, um, I kind of really thought it might be useful to share with our listeners and um, audience how we met. I think it's a quite a curious story because you and I met online. Um, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I think it was through either a Viva workshop or a Reuters workshop when we were both frantically commenting on the discussions and then we suddenly realized we've got so much in common. And I think Chris Wade was with us as well, commenting away. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a, um, a Reuters event on uh, Omnichannel um, mm -hmm. and the steps that needs to be done. And it was, uh, forgive me, I, I hope anyone that was, was speaking at it isn't listening, but it, it, it was a bit usual. Uh, it was the same stuff being spoken about and uh, the chat kind of lit up with things that we thought weren't being discussed and that maybe should be discussed. And mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. One of the topics of conversation was the people behind the process. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it on the channel a bit later, but there's often a lot said about it, but it kind of fails where the rubber hits the road um, in terms of implementation. So I'm pretty sure that's where you, Chris, and I kind of got into the thick of it in the chat. And that led to let's let's have a conversation outside of that webinar and, and see if our, we're as lined, aligned as we thought we were. And it turns out we were. Yeah, we're both yeah, really and it's curious. And it's curious how <clears throat> I, got, I kind of like we get, and build a relationship online you and i have not met in person have we no. yet yeah no. but i kind of no. I feel like i already know you and we've got a kind of like a meaningful discussion and relationship which is amazing shows the power of digital and how we can use it to our advantage it does that and shared shared passions shared language um you know share, you know our venn diagrams of what we do for a living overlap quite considerably so um it's quite easy to to um feel like we've known each other for a while yeah yeah, definitely. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you here, James. And I'm kind of like going to kick off and ask you some questions because I know that you've got a quite interesting background. You studied uh, ecology at the University of Sheffield. And I'm just curious what led you to get involved in communication and pharma um, in particular. And I think we were chatting with each other on LinkedIn and I thought it was really curious that you were talking about the sexual um demorphism of the common household spider which is your yeah. passion and so they have to make sure you don't talk about it but how did you get from that to pharma sales and pharma communications tell me about that uh, uh, i'd like to say brownian motion um a collection of circumstance that has led me down a path to where i am today you know a, a, a journey of a thousand steps sometimes backwards sometimes sideways uh, sometimes with my eyes closed uh, sometimes <laughs> 
but essentially, um, yeah, ecology is the study of plants and animals and their interaction with the environment. Um, and uh, yeah, I studied the sexual dimorphism of the common house spider. I can I can fill you in on that time. Um, and uh, it was a great degree, really interesting, but it wasn't very applicable to a career. Um, if I'd done environmental sciences, etc., it would have been. So I, I struggled when I came out. Um, it was just in the in the time where um, there was a lot of competition for fairly new jobs in the environment and ecology, um, and so I struggled to find one in that space. So I was working in warehouses and doing any sort of temporary job I could pay the bills, but I knew I had a science degree, that was some value. Um, so someone pointed me at the Telegraph on a Thursday, the back pages of a Telegraph on a Thursday advertised all the jobs in science. So I picked one up um, and there was a job as a medical rep for a company called Elan Pharma. Um, and it came with a car and it came with a salary. Um, and I, my camper van was on its last legs. My bank account was in its, uh, in, in the negative. So I picked the job up and that was pretty much it. I didn't really know what it entailed. No, that's not fair. I kind of knew something about it because my father uh, was a GP, he was a senior practice in a, in a general practice. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, so I knew, I knew something of it. Um, so when I, when I got to the end of my onboarding and training course with a lamb farmer, I, I knew a lot more about it, obviously at that point. So when I spoke to my dad and I told him what I was doing, you know, I was a little, little concerned he, he might he might see that as a you know why why, why didn't I end up as a doctor why didn't I end up in in the environment you know working in the environment like I'd hoped to etc um I was expecting that he's a nice chap but I was still expecting that but what he said was uh that actually he really valued the time he spent with medical reps because you know there's um he can't read all the scientific papers he can't keep up with all the scientific literature so he would value the conversations he had with the, the reps especially the ones he'd known for a while he would see three reps a week. That was his uh, that was his allotted time, and he'd try and arrange it so he saw reps from sort of uh, competing spaces in the same therapy area close together, so he could get you know the put the views together and you know add a bit of pinch of salt, and that would ha genuinely help him in his clinical practice mm -hmm. to keep up. So it was a great start for me. It kind of set me out, and I've always been pretty much from then on a bit of a champion for us reps out in the field and, and the good that we can do as an industry. And I've always been a, um, standing up for it, even, you know, in the, in the face of things. And I'm glad to say that, you know, the way we've got the vaccines out in such a, um, a, a, a speedy manner and, and the effect we've had, it, I believe it's brought, um, shone a good light on our industry. But I think mm -hmm. we could have to have that light shone in a more positive way for many years before. Yeah, that's a great story. And I'm so glad your dad was supportive and he saw the value because what I think a lot of people don't realize healthcare professionals are bombarded by information. They don't necessarily need information. They just want somebody to tell them a story and put meaning and draw kind of insight from that information. And, you know, they prefer stopping what they're doing, talk to a representative, providing that representative, talking to them about something that's relevant to them, um, because um, it kind of gives them a break from reading emails and data. And, you know, if they're getting that value, then they're more likely to continue having that relationship. Um, and yes. I'm just so glad your dad encouraged you to join the pharma industry. I bet he's really proud of you. He's really proud of you for setting up 28B. So um, yeah. you set up the company in 2010 to support pharma in all things digital. So what's been your journey? What are you doing now? Are you still focusing on all things digital or have you narrowed down your focus? No, so, so um, I, I made the unusual move um, 
uh, from being a rep to move to working in agency. And when you think about medcoms, PR and creative agencies, there's not a lot of us that moved from the field team. Uh, and funnily enough, I was out for dinner last night with the, the, the chap that started it all, Rob Wood. So Rob at the time was my product manager when I was selling Seroquel for schizophrenia. And mm -hmm. his wife, Cherry, set up a PR agency, PR Medcoms agency called Athena Medical PR. And their first big account was in schizophrenia. So Rob said to his wife, you should have a word with James. He knows all the psychiatrists in London. Um, he seems like a good chap. Um, I did I did ask Rob last night, um, genuinely, did, did you want to get rid of me or did you really think I'd be of value to your wife? But either way, I left Zeneca and joined Athena. And I loved it. I loved all the working with KOLs, the meetings. It was kind of like all the fun part of being a rep without some of the, you know, the struggles of being a rep, getting to see doctors, having to get through past uh, gatekeepers and and the mm -hmm. slog and the travel and all the rest of it. So I, I like a duck to water, really enjoyed that. And Cherry and I uh, grew that agency from from a couple of us to 18. Um, and then I, 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 I let my... Um, I was headhunted uh, with a chance to run an agency up in Cambridgeshire, which is why I'm now based here in, in, in Huntingdon. Um, the agency was in St. Ives. Very difficult to run a PR agency outside of London, but I gave it a go. Anyway, mm. moved around through different agencies and then, funnily enough, ended up back at Athena. Um, but Cherry had left at that point and there was a new managing director, Steve Carroll, Dr. Steve Carroll. And the, our last big account was with Zeralto, Bayer, you know, a mega brand. And uh, the product manager said, could you could you do some, you know, we need to do more digital. So this was, what, 12 years ago. Um, and Athena was about as digital as an Excel spreadsheet. And I'll admit, I was about as digital as an Excel spreadsheet. So rather than pretend we could do it, we made the interesting choice or strategic choice to introduce what essentially was a competitor, a company called Big Pink, run by Wayne Page. And they were brought in to do the digital. And, you know, we encouraged that. By the end of the year, they had all of the budget and we had none because they were shiny and new and they were digital, but they also did what we did. And I thought that was kind of insane to that 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 happened. And so it spurred me on, along with the launch of the iPhone 3. There's the original iPhone 3 that was launched that year. I, I, I was inspired to set up 28B to support small, medium, independent agencies with the digital so that they can compete with large digital agencies, et cetera. And, um, uh, yeah, that's what we did. We, we set out to do everything and anything, um, but then fell in love with Viva and what we could do with reps and, and shifted from websites and apps and system bills to really focus in on enabling reps with technology and data because I kind of wish I had that back when I was a rep. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I yeah. carbon copy paper I, and I used to do the call reporting. I'd fold it up, put it in an envelope. It'd go in the post to dendrite ims walsh walsh <laughs> yeah. and then and then about three weeks later i get a floppy disk back with an excel spreadsheet on so you know the, the opportunity that technology now presents to a field team in terms of understanding customers and and, and orchestrating value is, is immense and that, and that's so mm -hmm. I, I chose to re reshape the whole company to to just just deliver in that space yeah, I mean, it's so clear that um, that communication element in healthcare is a passion of yours. So how do you think pharma can improve the industry communication as a whole? <clears throat> that is a really big question and it's a really important question and we should be asking it more. So thank you for that question. Um, 
it has to do. So I'm going to use this quote again and full credit to someone else that you've interviewed recently, which is Paul Sims. So Paul and I were debating the future of the rep at, at an event, which I think you may well have attended online. Yeah. And he, he read out a quote right at the beginning. And this quote has absolutely lived in my head ever since. And it was from a UK farmer managing director. And it, within that quote, he said um, through Paul, he said that with the backlog of patients that we're seeing in the UK and the rest of the world, it's now a moral, ethical obligation for us as an industry not to waste the time of our HCPs. And I thought, gosh, that's really, that's that's really important. It's never I remember that. It was a tumbleweed yeah. moment after he said yeah. it. Yeah. Quiet. And, and it's yeah. absolutely true. So how do we ensure that we are not wasting their time? So we need well-informed, skilled, competent, and confident reps that understand their customers' needs in depth and can orchestrate the, co the content and communications that that customer experiences so that we add value and that we create meaningful conversations over time rather than have the same conversation every time. So moving from rep 2.0, which is a bit of a sandwich board rep, which is what I was, we were definitely scientifically based. I understood my science. I have a science degree, as I can see. That Kimberly also has an environmental science. She comments yeah, in there, yeah. you know. So, so I, I've never been shy of the science. But you know, we had a fairly limited sales aid. It's the same five key messages that we bang out time and time again. We need to move away from that to rep 3.0, which is the ability to have in-depth conversations, to understand our customers' needs, get it down to what is the job to be done, and then help the customer do that job. Right. And that and that could be getting home on time. It could be patient or whatever it might be. It's our job as an industry to understand that and, and then to address it. And it and that so and that can be through fear teams. It can be through digital communication, non-personal, um, whatever it is. The, the doctor doesn't care what function we're from within pharma, whether we're MSLs or CAMs or reps or marketing or the managing director or whoever it might be, they want to have a consistent, meaningful engagement with that company. Um, and that's where Omnichannel uh, will, will come in, et cetera. But I believe that Omnichannel should be powered from the field. The best mm -hmm. data set we get on our customers comes from the reps interacting or the CAMs or the MSLs interacting with customers and building that data set. That's how we add value. Yeah, and I think that requires a fundamental change in uh, mindset and shift in mindset because I think the days of going and dropping three key messages is way gone. Um, you know, some of the metrics we use are outdated. And I think if you're truly delivering value, if you are working with healthcare professionals on their agenda, um, they want to see you. If you, what yes. you're delivering is going to help their pain point, addresses their key challenges, they want to engage with you. So there's no barriers. It's just, I think, if you're just thinking about ourselves and what our need is without considering the pressures they're under, which is a lot more now compared to three years ago, that's when there's going to be a disconnect. So commercial salespeople are commercial people. Whatever you ask them to give is what they're going to deliver. And for that reason, I think it's really important to think about what KPIs we're using to measure performance, you know, moving from vanity KPIs to things that are value based. In your view, what are what are the things that we need to measure if you're measuring value? Um, more importantly, Again. what should we stop measuring? <laughs> well, OK, so um, very good question. We want to ensure 
that we're adding value at every touch point in a consistent, meaningful way that that can that creates an ongoing conversation and experience, not this and this and this. It's important to think about engagement versus experience. We're trying to create that that experience. Part of creating anything is evaluating how well we're doing it and then responding if that if we're not doing very well, closing the loop. What those actual metrics are is tricky. But you're absolutely right. What can we leave behind? Well, frankly, reach and frequency. Um, mm. You know, if if we if we're getting rid of the sandwich board rep, um, then reach and frequency. I don't think I'm not sure it ever worked. But let's certainly, as we go to fewer customers, harder access, more complex situations, and we're trying to address the job that's to be done, then reach and frequency becomes less and less relevant. Um, it's a bit like saying I use the analogy that, you know, you can be Let's say we're running a, an in-person event and we got 30 empty seats and we fill all 30 of them. Great. Is that a great metric? We had a full house. If the presentation that's given is terrible, then it might mm -hmm. actually be a negative thing. So why, why is the number of bums on seats without evaluating the impact of the content? What a much better thing would be ask those people as they leave the meeting, you know, has it been of value today? And do you think what you've learned will change the work, you know, anything uh, tomorrow? When you go to your job tomorrow, will there be something that you're doing different? You know, is there a behavioral change behind it? Because ultimately, even if we're selling or setting up referral pathways or setting up an environment in which appropriate prescribing can happen, i.e. an MSL, what we need the customer to say, or sorry, I shouldn't say customer and MSL in the same sentence, what, what we'd want the clinician to say is that they agree to change something. Otherwise, there's been no value in that call. How you measure that change is where we go to next. Could be yeah. something as simple as NPS scores. It could be something as doctor, you know, will you now prescribe? Will you now refer? I mean, sh should we be embarrassed about asking that question? That's why we're there. And if they're gonna say, mm, not sure, then I haven't done my job properly. Can I come back next time and maybe we can expand on that and see what it is that's stopping you from, from prescribing? Mm. I think um, you're making a really valid point. I know what metrics we could just leave behind. And I agree with you, the coverage and frequency is one of those. And I think uh, I was actually, um, saw some of the metrics by a client we're working in and I'm, I'm actually meeting with them tomorrow. I'm gonna challenge them. They want to see their target audience three times a year. And my first question is why? Why do you have to see them three times a year? And it's like, what, what is it that you're going to say to them? In What are the three value points you're going to deliver in those three interactions? And do they actually need what you're going to deliver? So it's about really turning on his head and thinking about what is the journey you want to take the healthcare professionals on and assessing whether that's a journey they're ready to take and what's the timeline they want to go on that journey. And I think measuring their travel along that journey is probably a better measure rather than how many times you see them because I mean I'm working directly with some of the senior leaders in uh, NHS and I find sometimes to move the needle on a proposition you only need to talk to maybe two or three people in a key account who are the major decision uh, makers to decide what's the um, how to spend the budget or how to define the policy and you can't waste their time you need to be really relevant to them but then if they see the proposition and they see the value in it, they put their resources behind it to make it happen. So we don't necessarily do need to do everything ourselves. Um, I mean, I was talking to somebody recently, they said, Mernas, we put that on our newsletter, you don't need to send a mailing. So it's kind of like really understanding 
their need and responding to it is more important. I stopped measuring coverage and frequency back in 2005. And I think it's well, about yeah. the right person. When, when it was exactly those words that you said to me when we were chatting the other day that said you have that made me think you have to be you have to be on the webcast you have to be on our session on the on on the twenty eighth about vanity versus value the fact that you've 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 um, moved away from that and moved away from that so long ago uh, I have to, so one one of the things that twenty eight B does is we create um, selling effectiveness dashboards for field teams right in, in Viva or whatever platform that you're using that uh that brings data points from the crm together to make it meaningful for them so they can take action and sometimes we do the requirements gathering we go out there and we talk to people about what they'd like to measure and what i'm trying to put in there is stuff that's valuable that has some form of um benchmark that they can measure themselves against but sometimes we get, get a report from a consultancy firm that's done that part and they say here's the metrics that we want to display in that dashboard and the last three that we've done the last three presentations I was sent, it was like it was like 15 years ago. It was reach, frequency, number of emails sent, this, that, the other, and not just that, like the number of emails sent, and then but with no benchmark. What's a good number? You got to send three emails. What three emails? Why is an email a measure? What's yeah. in the email? What, what's it asking someone to do? It, this seems such. Uh, but then the challenge is that sounds. Yes, that's clearly not much value, but what's, what is the alternative? How do you genuinely measure it, especially yeah. across large territories and large numbers of doctors? But yeah, the idea that I will convert this doctor because I send them three emails, even though I can't tell you at this point what those three emails are, is a tad naive. Yeah, just because you, you can measure it doesn't mean that's the right thing to measure. Uh, I hate yeah. measuring target markers. The ultimate measure is sales. Is what you're trying to do resonating with customers and they want to use your product or not? That's the key measure. And it's binary. Yeah, you either do it or yeah. you're done doing it. Yeah. Because we, we don't have that signature on the dotted line, right? So we have to, we take steps away from that direct measure, which is are they prescribing more, right? So we can't see that. So we've got X factory sales or brick data sales. Then we've got the word of the doctor, you know, will, are you, will you now prescribe? Then, mm -hmm. then we've got the next one down, which in certain cases, you know, people are uncomfortable asking, will you now prescribe? So have I added value today? Uh, is there something I've talked about today that will change the way your, your practice? And then, and then we've got uh, what content with key brand messages did we share, but that's based on the assumption or the, our, our hubris that those, those will change. And then mm -hmm. you've got, I saw them. So, you know, I saw them without any context then we've got what content we shared, then we've got some form of commitment, and then we've got the sales. They're all kind of important, they all need to be there, but the further you step away from agreed behavioral change, the less um, meaningful that measure yeah. is. Plus, like, what you yeah. measure is what you get, and you said that, and if you're measuring reach and frequency, and I, I am honest about this, that, that back in the day, when, especially when I was at Lily, don't listen Lily, um, but very, very focused on reach and frequency, very dogmatic about our call rates and what we had to achieve, whilst putting three of us on the same territory, by the way, so that mm -hmm. doctors were just like, I'm, not, I'm literally not seeing him. I saw, saw your colleague just a few weeks ago or even yesterday. I occasionally might have gone to see the doctors that probably had no chance of prescribing, or if they did, they would only do so very briefly just to bump my numbers. So mm -hmm. if that's what you want to measure, how many doctors I see, then that's what you're going to get. 
So James, tell me, what's your definition of the omnichannel experience? Um, it is um, creating a, a meaningful, consistent engagement across all of the channels and touch points for a customer to create a great experience over time. And I'm very keen on that idea that you know we talk about engagement, but omnichannel is not engagement, it's experience. It's an ongoing conversation. So a sales calls might be an engagement, but what happens in between what do we add to it? A banner ad click is an engagement, but where does it go on to? So it's that mm -hmm. consistent, meaningful conversation over time to create great experiences. And like I'll say again, the, hard, the hardest thing, and you said this right at the beginning, is I am people focused because the hardest thing about Omnichannel is, is, the, is the people aspect, the person aspect. Yeah. It, Omnichannel is more than a digital problem. In fact, it starts with an organizational and people problem. It's about integration, but you've got to start with, and you're right to ask my definition, each organization has their own definition. I can walk mm -hmm. into a pharma company, one brand team has a completely different definition or understanding of Omnichannel, then the BI team have a different description and understanding, and then, so there needs to be one consistent definition within the organization, and then we need to beat down the barriers that exist between functions. From medical to commercial, from within commercial, you've got marketing and sales. No doctor cares really where you are aligned within there. They want you to know the conversations they've had with the other people within compliance, mm -hmm. regulatory, MSL, commercial, all that stuff. But a good, a good example of how frustrating it must be for a doctor is, let's say you're calling up your insurance company because you or your phone company because there's a fault or you've got a question on a bill. And you have to put in your account number on the on the on the keypad and then you finally get through and the person says can i have your account number and you're like well what? i just okay uh, and, then, <laughs> and then you take your details and then you take your complaint or whatever it might be and they go oh i'm really sorry you're in the wrong department so i'm, I'm going to put you across could you mind holding you hold for three or four minutes and the next person says can i have your account number can i have the problem and you're like that's even in one single engagement, there's no consistency. Connection. So if a is coming in to see a doctor on a regular basis and they're not evolving the conversation or they're going to see a different part, they, they see see a CAM and then an MSL. And if it's like, do you guys not talk? Like, why am I having these individual engagements rather than experience? So breaking down those barriers, collecting the data, and making it meaningful so that whoever is next to see that customer can see the full story, knows their needs, understands it, rather than resets the clock each time and has to go back. How annoying that must be for a doctor. Very annoying. Very annoying indeed. We experience it ourselves when we're dealing with companies, so I, I can imagine that. So I think, James, I'm going to touch point on a post you put on LinkedIn. I think it was like controversial post the famous uh, the tombstone of death of a farmer rep uh i, I can't read that was the point i really felt our rep your vision and your values really resonated with me and i just wanted to check with you what's your opinion of the rep of the future and has that changed since you posted that i think it was about a few months ago it was june last year i was on holiday uh I had to had to had to say to my wife I was playing Wordle, not not spending all my time on LinkedIn. But I couldn't I couldn't miss out on this. So um, I'm going to reference Paul, the, the mighty Paul Sims again. So Paul Sims put a video out I don't know about three years ago about um, about reps hunting doctors through a forest. I don't know if you ever saw I it. Know. Uh, I, I, I actually were talking to him about it on Monday. I said that video I found it quite offensive. 
Yes, so um, did I. I, I and, and, you know, yes, there's some reps out like that, out there like that, but not everyone. In fact, I rarely have ever met anyone like that. We're, you know, we're, we're all, we all took a pride in what we did. Bloody hard job. And, and I think it's a bit naive to think that's how reps actually are. Mm. So, um, so, and I was inspired one morning just thinking about that video that I wrote a, that and, and the, the day before a client had said, oh, James, do you really think that you know, COVID is the final nail in the coffin of the of the rep? And so I made that post. And actually what I was saying is absolutely not. I think human beings are always part of a complex sales um, and, and, a, and, and a relationship with our customers. You know, you don't you don't decide to prescribe based on a banner ad. You don't decide to prescribe based on. Um, even medical education or a good webinar. And frankly, you don't suddenly start prescribing because an MSL has set up a pathway between yeah. your treatment center and your referrer, right? And, and I think that's the naivety of thinking the future is just MSL, right? It, it's You need that person to push for and to convince and to show the evidence. Um, so yeah, the, the, that post, um, I, I'd, written, I'd reached about 150,000 views, which is extraordinary. Uh, and and I'd called Paul out on it, and then Paul joined in the conversation. Of course, as everyone should know, he's got about thirty six thousand followers on on LinkedIn. So that brought us up to about two hundred and fifty, and it was good. You know, I had a good good. I had not written no Paul up until then, um, but after that, we went and had dinner and we had a chat and realised, you know, that we're both passionate about getting pharma to wake up and well, wake up's not fair. I think they're woken up, but to to get to get some change. Um, and our Venn diagrams overlapped, but there was enough of a difference that in um, in uh, October we we did an in-person event in London where we had that debate and we kicked off from that. So your question, sorry, yeah. coming back to your question, has my view changed? No, I, I very much believe the future of, of a rep is 3.0, which is technically competent, scientifically literate, business savvy. Um, and, and probably harking a bit back to the rad days, right? Which was an inspiration for me when I was a rep. Uh, that gosh, they've given that much, you know, that much freedom to do the right things to someone in the field. It was quite inspiring. I think there's an element of that in there. But the rep 3.0 is a connector. They're an orchestrator. They understand their customers' needs, and they have at their fingertips now more than ever such a huge array of effective content and channels in which to share that content. And they're basically orchestrating the customer's journey. They're also, if you get the materials right, like we do at 28B in terms of gathering insights, is we're building this rich profile of the customer's needs and challenges within the CRM. And then mm -hmm. that data in the CRM can then feed the wider omnichannel engagement with that customer. So uh, scientists call it sort of bottom-up digital is make sure your field team value data, make sure that you've got the tools that can collect that data, get that data into your CRM, and then act on that data. Why? Not so just so we can sell more, because it means we're adding value. We understand mm -hmm. our customers in a deep and meaningful way, which allows us to respond you know, and move it forward and, and, and give them what they need um, to improve their clinical practice, to improve the outcomes for their patients. Yeah, and uh, as you know, I used to be a rad at Takeda. That was the way I felt I could have the biggest impact on, you know, aligning agendas with NHS and doing something that added value to them, added value to the patient, but also added value to my employer. And I've not shifted. That's why I'm saying coverage and frequency went out of the door for me um, over 20 years ago.
but I, I feel you and I have the same passion about the people. I think what we did at Chemia um, during lockdown, we bottled our skills in terms of engaging with healthcare professionals and we created Chemia Reset and Chemia Reinspire. And um, our platform has helped so many sales professionals, sales managers to get their arms around this way of communicating with healthcare professionals. And specifically what we found is it really increased their confidence. Uh, it helped them to improve the quality. And we've seen dramatic increase in their face-to-face -face and digital contacts as much as five times within six weeks of doing the training. And I think we actually are similar to you, our um, uh, alliance partner with Viva as well, which is amazing. But I think it's been absolutely amazing to have you here, James. And I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation with you online or offline. And, and the topic you talk about is actually something I'm really curious about. And I'm writing a book about the Pharma 3.0 and what are the components as individuals and also as organization we need to put in place to be able to facilitate that. So um, it'd be really good to have your input on that. But I just wanted to close saying thank you so much for your input, James. I don't know whether we get kicked out, but it's the first time I'm trying it. So we just carry on talking for maybe for a few more minutes. But I was just going to say, if you're looking for a solution around the tech, um, talk to James. If you're looking for a solution around changing your sales team, sales management behaviors uh, and mindset, just get in touch with us. We both would love to help you to facilitate that uh, journey of digital transformation for your organization. Do you have anything else to add, James? Um, only I love these sort of conversations, whether they be um, on LinkedIn Live or podcast or, or just one-to-one. -one. So if there's anyone out there that's just just curious or has something interesting to share, um, uh, some new technology or some new insights, um, um, seeing the comments from Kimberly and Jay's, et cetera, you know, uh, love to engage yeah. with you, just learn more. I have found that I have learned more by just listening and, and, and understanding what people do um, than just forging ahead with what I think is right, although I can be guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thank you, Kimberly, for your input. I think uh, Jay has, has put a question there. I'm not quite sure whether I understand the question. Have you read it, James? I, I struggle with, with it a little bit at the end. I think I think maybe you're mistyping at the end, but yeah. I, I'm guessing um, moving to... So the whole... And it actually speaks to Kimberly's point as well, which is, you know, for years I have heard people from global organizations uh, at a senior level talk about this. Same with modular content, same with AI, and there's these grace aspirations. But where the rubber hits the road, when you've got a brand team trying to make it happen in an affiliate, mm -hmm. You know, it's just it just it evaporates by the time it gets there. And actually, that's what we see with technology as well. I mean, you know, I love Viva, love the people that work there, I really admire the company. They're very important to us. But if I've got a criticism is when it comes to people actually use it, they're not brilliant at bringing them on board. There's not a lot of support there, which is great. That's why you're there. That's why I'm here. Um, yeah. And I guess if we were really good at that, we'd be out of a job. But, you know, yeah. it, it is it is sometimes distressing to see that these guys out there in the field or the brand teams are just scraping 10 to 20% of the opportunity that these technologies represent. Um, I think that's maybe yeah. a conversation for another interview, but I think people have been distracted by the shiny stuff. They uh, yep. invested in the tech, they invested in the digital content. And I think somehow they forgot that they forgot to bring the sales reps on this journey with them. So I think that a lot of them are realizing now two or three years down the line that 
they need to engage the end users. Otherwise, investment in the platform and the technology is not going to give you the return you're looking for. Mindset, skill set, tool set, that order. Um, yeah. As an example of how you can get distracted by it, I was speaking to a very senior player and globally they have a problem that in only 10% of their calls are materials being used. Now, we all mm -hmm. know you've got to be an exceptional rep to sell verbally, just verbally, right? So yeah. no materials used in 90% in of their calls. And what was his suggested solution was what if we, oh gosh, um, he's going to know <laughs> who he is. That's a missed opportunity. I mean, I'll ask him when I'm talking to healthcare professionals. Started to talk about a shiny technology we could build into the sales aid. And it's like, no, no, we haven't won the hearts and minds. We could make it the shiniest detail aid in the world. They won't use it because you haven't convinced them of the value of that content clearly. We have to go back to basics, brilliant basics, and build back from the bottom. Yeah, I agree. I think that's such a missed opportunity. I often actually find when I'm talking to healthcare professionals, they say, come on, jump on Teams. It's so much easier for me to show you trying to verbalize it. How can you verbalize a budget impact model or a complex clinical information? It, just show them a graph or numbers. They can see it, be on the same page as you. And also by getting them online on a Teams or Zoom or whatever they prefer, you get to get input from them. You know, make it interactive. It doesn't have to be one way, but that's such a missed opportunity. Um, anyway, it's, we can carry on talking forever, but I just think we need to bring this to a close. Thank you so much for those of you who um, supported us with your comments. And thank you, James, for making time to chat to me. I'll probably invite you and we chat about something else, but I look forward to... Uh, working with you. Take care and goodbye from both of us. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.